Welcome to the Trinity's Podcast, where we explore theories about the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Do you love God enough to think about Him? Episode 313, Wayne Channing Unitarianism. In this episode of the Trinity's podcast, I'm going to offer a few rough draft thoughts on the pros and cons of Channing's views, as you heard in the last several episodes of the Trinity's podcast. The first thing I should do is to explain the title of this episode. Why didn't I say Wayne Channing's Unitarianism? Why did I say Channing Unitarianism? Well, that term, Channing Unitarianism, was a common phrase in the later 1800s. This described that wing of Unitarians who believed in God, who believed in the Bible, who believed in miracles. It was a term to refer to that wing of the Congregationalist Unitarian movement in the 1800s, which remained distinctively Christian, while other elements of it were spinning out of control into transcendentalist philosophy, into religious pluralism, the notion that, at least if you stick with one of the great religions, you know, maybe one's as good as any other. And of course, our perspective is different than that of Channing himself. We know how this movement that he was a part of, that he was a leader in, turned out. Basically, it shipwrecked, it ceased over a course of decades to be, on the whole, a Christian movement. So we're right to be on the lookout for any mistakes in his thinking, for any mistaken emphases, for any important falsehoods that he's committed to, for any mistaken tendencies, for any off or anti-biblical practices. But of course, when you look at any historical theology or any current-day theology of a certain Christian movement, you have to sort the good from the bad, right? It's kind of like eating chicken. You have to eat the meat, but eat around the bones. Maybe even in a couple of cases, spit the bones out. Look, for all we know, right now, mainstream American evangelicalism contains within it the seeds of its own destruction. Personally, I suspect that its political commitments, its political involvement, its political nature is not going to end well. It could be that this was there beginning to go off the rails. In any case, I can't help but also highlight a bunch of really great things in Channing's talks that you heard. Now, before I get into my comments on those talks of Channing's that you heard, which I picked because I think that is some of his very best material, not all of it, but let me talk about a few shortcomings I observe in Channing's thinking, which are not really in those essays that you heard. One of these is his extreme anti-creedalism. He was just totally and viscerally against all, quote, man-made creeds, as were probably most of the people in this Congregationalist Unitarianism. They were reacting against Calvinism with its creeds. They were reacting as early Americans against European established religions. The countries of Europe were either Protestant or Catholic. Either way, they had an official state church, which had an official uh, special place with the government. And of course, when they thought about creeds, they thought about the ridiculous and extreme Athanasian creed, which merrily damns anyone who doesn't accept its seemingly self-contradictory claims. Of course, they were also aware of the more popular creeds like the Nicene Creed. 
At any rate, this was a great Achilles heel for the movement. If you just have this idea that if a person salutes the Bible and interprets it however they see fit, and that's all you're going to require for fellowship, you're not going to require any specific beliefs, then when you come to have a pastor who has weird notions about the Bible and who says he believes the Bible but has crazy interpretations of it, when it turns out this guy doesn't actually believe in God, this guy doesn't believe in baptism. This guy doesn't believe in miracles or in Christianity as a divinely revealed religion. They couldn't decide what to do with that guy. They had interminable arguments, conversations about the matter. They discussed and debated it. And before long, you had people with all kinds of notions in the pulpit and eventually people with all kinds of notions in the leadership of the movement. And it ceased to be a Christian movement. And I just don't see any good ground for being so hostile to creeds in general. Why can't a church, why can't a parachurch ministry just say, hey, to be a full member or even to be in leadership, you need to believe. And then they come up with something, you know, broadly similar to the Apostles' Creed. What's wrong with that? We don't want atheists to be full members, right? Maybe we want them around. Maybe we hope that we can love them and influence them. But we don't want them for leadership or even for full-fledged membership, right? So his anti-creedalism, I think, was a big mistake. Another mistake I think he made was he was so concerned about the danger of what in those days they would call party spirit. You know, zeal for your own faction. You could call it sectarianism. He was so concerned about that that he was wary of having a Unitarian sect, and so sometimes he would just sort of pretend to be above all sects and not to have his own group, even though he clearly had one. When the American Unitarian Association was formed in Boston in the 1820s, they thought he would be the natural leader of it, and they invited him to uh, be the leader of it, and he declined because he thought that would be like a factional thing. And I think that was a mistake. I think he lost opportunities to build this branch of Christianity and to help it grow and to help it find balance and to help it navigate some of the prevailing errors and uh, dangerous philosophies of the day. I think he lost out on influence that he should have had in the movement, all because he kind of felt like he was too above all of this group loyalty. Okay, but he just was in that group. That's who he preached to. That's who looked up to him. That's who he influenced. But he didn't own it for some reason. I'm not sure I understand why, but I am inclined to think that it was a mistake. And even though he can bring a biblical and reasonable case for Unitarian theology and Christology and do it in a very winsome, attractive way, at the same time, it seems that he was conflicted, like he just thought these things shouldn't be issues and that things would just be better if we could pretend that there never had been Trinity or Incarnation speculations. Well, wouldn't that be nice? He tended to kind of, I think, tire of the uh, struggle for reform in those matters and sort of wanted to stick to more practical things as time went on. Okay, I'll start with some comments about his famous long sermon called Unitarian Christianity. 
One interesting point is notice how he twice defines the term Unitarian Christianity or Unitarian Christian. A Unitarian Christian, as he's using that term, means someone who believes that the one God just is the Father alone. And as for Jesus, he is another and a lesser being than that one true God. And he would also say that it includes that Jesus is a man and Jesus is the Messiah. But notice that he doesn't define either the affirmation or the denial of Christ's pre-existence into this term, Unitarian Christian, just like the present-day Unitarian Christian Alliance. And I think that is a correct move. And the reason it's correct is because it is really obvious in the Bible that the one true God just is the Father alone, and not also the other two, and not the Trinity And it's pretty clear that the Trinity just totally goes unmentioned. There is no triune God ever mentioned or even implied or assumed anywhere in the Bible. If you agree with that, you're a Unitarian in your theology. You think God is one person, namely the Father. Now, did Christ pre-exist? And what should we make of the Holy Spirit? Those are less clear matters particularly the pre-existence of Christ. If you open up a study Bible, if you open up a commentary, you will find people very confidently telling you that obviously Philippians 2 and obviously John 1 and Colossians 1 teach that Jesus pre-existed his human career. And you'll find just that the translators have capitalized the words Holy Spirit, making it sound like it's a kind of a personal name, even though that's not a personal name. So those matters are more difficult, and it doesn't seem possible for Unitarians to guarantee that everybody will end up on the one side or the other. It seems to me a good practice, too, just like the New England Congregationalists in the late 1700s and early 1800s tolerate both views. Channing himself believed in pre-existence, but he was well aware of others who didn't, And as far as I know, a majority of Unitarian Christians in America in that time did believe in the pre-existence, in the pre-human career of Christ. And they just thought that was compatible with his genuine humanity. Now, I'd like to have a friendly argument with them about this, both about the text and about the idea that there could be a genuine human being which has always existed or which has existed before creation occurred. But, you know, they're still Unitarians. And I'm aware of the difficulty of these further questions about Christ and the Holy Spirit because it took me a number of years after I was convinced that the one God was a Father to settle my views about these alleged two other divine persons. Now, in this long sermon called Unitarian Christianity, which was always intended to be a manifesto for the movement, I read somewhere that they actually printed a couple thousand copies of the sermon before he delivered it. And so they were ready to, I presume, sell or sell and give away at least a couple of thousand copies of that sermon, even while he was standing there delivering it in that Baltimore church. And uh, I mean, it's a humdinger. He is uh, punching strongly and connecting a whole lot of punches. And he makes really devastating points about the Bible and the Trinity. In general, he's pointing out that we just don't find what we would expect to find in the Bible if those writers believed in a triune God, in the one God as three divine persons. 
And of course, one can just observe that the word Trinity isn't there. That's one point. But the deeper point is that the idea, the concept of a triune God isn't there anywhere. There isn't a single passage such that to understand that passage, you need to employ a concept of a triune God. So yeah, it's not just that they didn't have the word Trinity. It's not that they just didn't have developed Trinitarianism, whatever that means. There isn't any kind of Trinitarianism there because Trinitarianism means belief in a triune God. And there is no belief in a triune God reflected anywhere in the Old or New Testaments. I myself have argued in this general way that if they were Trinitarians, you would expect to find XYZ, but you don't find XYZ there, and therefore those writers are not Trinitarians. On the other hand, if they're Unitarians, you'd expect to see ABC, and you do see A, B, and C there, and so it looks like they are Unitarians. Those ways of arguing I have employed myself. I think I got the idea of arguing this way from reading this sermon by Channing and also from what I presented in podcast 191, Henry Ware Jr.'s little tract called Outline of the Testimony of Scripture Against the Trinity. It's a very powerful way of arguing. It's a way of arguing that connects with truth seekers about the matter. And it just sidesteps all of the endless sort of games and uh, tortured interpretations that surround Trinitarians' small handful of favorite texts. These arguments work based on broad features of the New Testament as a whole. They just all add up together to make a very powerful case that these folks thought that the one God is the Father, not the Trinity. When the Trinity's podcast returns, some brief comments on Channing's anti-Calvinism. comments on his anti-Calvinism. He spent quite a lot of that sermon on anti-Calvinist points, and that was a very important and central part of this brand of Unitarian Christianity in early America. I would just point out that one can be a Calvinist, or, you know, a lot of people aren't really full-blown Calvinists, but they're just sympathizers to it or hold some of the points of it. One can be one of those things and be a Unitarian. There's no obvious inconsistency there. Seems to me you can believe in the one God as the Father Almighty and in Jesus as his human Messiah, and you could believe in the classic, you know, fivefold tulip scheme, total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, and perseverance of the saints. I myself don't think the scriptures teach probably any of those things, depending on how you define total depravity, but it seems to me that you might be a Unitarian and yet hold to those interpretations of the New Testament. Of course, it's an interesting question why it's rare to find this combination of views. I think part of the answer for the rarity is that Calvinism goes hand in hand with what I would call traditional missology. 
In other words, dislike or hatred of human reason. Unitarianism goes hand in hand with a healthy and balanced love for human reason, not a hate of it. This is a precious gift which God has given us and which God wants us to use to the best of our ability. This is something he hasn't given the other animals. And he will hold us accountable for how we use this great gift. And if you value common sense and carefully used human reasoning, that's going to tend to puncture traditional defenses of the Trinity, particularly ones where they just say, oh, sure, it's contradictory, or maybe it's just apparently contradictory, but, you know, you can't trust human reason. Well, you can't trust human reason. You trust it every single day. You trust science. You trust your memory about how the laws of nature work. You trust your own mathematical abilities. You trust your ability to make basic inferences. Life and death matters. Hang on these constantly. It's just frankly ridiculous to denigrate and pour scorn on human reason, as if it's some crummy or inherently sinful sort of thing. Or even something that was made good but has been irreparably damaged by sin so as to be fundamentally untrustworthy. Come on, we trust it all of the time, every day in all sorts of contexts. It's not that it's infallible. It's not that it's perfect. But it's not a good excuse when your doctrine runs into some tremendous difficulty or even into uh, seeming contradiction with itself to just pour scorn on human reason as if that's obviously the real problem. Now, of course, we do sin, we get mixed motives and bad motives, and we can use human reason to defend and continue in things that we ought to repent of. Sure, it's like the body, it's like sex, it's like pleasure. These things all have their proper and good uses, and it would be foolish to be against them in general. So it is with human reason. It has countless proper and good uses. It's really hard to imagine how we could possibly get along as human beings without constantly relying on human reason. Anyway, Calvinism goes hand in hand with a low view of human reason, even something you can call misology, hatred of human reason. And Unitarianism tends to go hand in hand with a healthy acceptance of and respect for, even gratefulness for, human reason. That's one reason why I think it's hard to combine Calvinistic ideas with uh, Unitarian ideas. Chain also discusses how many, but not all, Unitarian Christians reject penal substitutionary atonement theories, basically because they don't make any moral sense and because the Bible simply doesn't say those things, as Channing points out. But, you know, the Bible doesn't really explain how Christ's death on the cross leads to our being forgiven. It says it's a sacrifice, it's a sin offering, it's like the Old Testament sacrifices, but does it say that God could not have forgiven us without that? I don't think it clearly says that or implies it anywhere. But if it's not strictly required, then why did it happen? Was it just good, though not strictly required? Well, I think so. I think it was a tremendously valuable sacrifice and a demonstration of God's love for us as discussed by early American Unitarian Noah Wooster in a couple of other Trinity's podcast episodes. So you can be Unitarian and hold to various atonement theories, and Channing says as much. Channing's criticisms of, quote, the Trinity, interestingly, work against some Trinity theories, but not others. 
I think he effectively attacks what I call three self Trinity theories. These are theologies on which the three persons of the Trinity really are persons, that is to say, selves, intelligent agents, thinking, acting beings, each of which has the divine essence. Right? And the divine essence is supposed to be just whatever it is that makes a being into a god. So if, if you have three beings with that, it looks like you have three gods, which of course is not a kind of monotheism, but rather that implies the falsity of monotheism. If monotheism were true, there would just be one thing which had the divine essence, not three. I think he does say some interesting things against views on which the Trinity is a contradiction or an apparent contradiction. But I don't think he really addresses oneself Trinity theories, where the so-called persons of the Trinity just turn out to be something like eternal ways that God exists, or even like personalities of his or something, where there's really just oneself there. And I think he gives another type of objection, which is really devastating to both Trinity and incarnation theories, which is this. If such doctrines, as is often strongly table-pounded, were really essential to the faith— then one would expect them to be clearly taught in at least one biblical passage. But neither is. There is no Trinity passage. There is no incarnation passage in the Bible that is clear. Arguments from the Bible to the incarnation or from the Bible to the Trinity are tortured and complicated affairs, which involve cherry-picking scattered little difficult passages, trying to patch them all together in the right way, and massaging various claims which are arguably in the text until we get something that kind of looks like the creedal language. But if such claims were actually part of apostolic-era Christian teaching, such tortured arguments just wouldn't be necessary. Rather, we just turn to the writings of Paul or John, etc., and find a paragraph or two on that subject. But we don't. This shows that such doctrines are not a part of New Testament revelation. They're just not a part of the contents of New Testament teaching, or at least they're not a part which is essential to our salvation. That would require just an average reader to be able to grasp a Trinity or Incarnation doctrine in the actual writings. Another strong argument, and again I gave my own version of this in podcast 189, is that there is no trace of any Trinity-related controversies in the first century, whether in the New Testament books or elsewhere. But there would have been considerable controversies. The non-Christian Jews were not stupid, they were paying attention, and they were hostile to this Jesus movement, and if they thought these Christians were teaching three divine persons, they would have denounced this immediately as tritheism. But there's no record of this. And so, it looks like that lack of evidence for Trinity controversy shows that no such teaching was going on at the time. He also objects very correctly that mainstream Catholic theorizing about two natures in Christ effectively posits two selves in Christ. See my interviews with Dr. Timothy Paul on this subject. These ancient Catholics thought that the human nature suffered and died on the cross, whereas the divine nature was immutable and impassable, so in principle incapable of any sort of change or of any sort of suffering. Of course, nowadays, some will construe two natures in Jesus as just being two essential properties, not two things, a man and a deity, but rather just there's one person who has the defining qualities of divinity and also has the defining qualities of humanity. 
That seems impossible, but if you want to hear more about that, check out the first chapter of my debate book with Chris Date. And by the way, I and many others, and many Trinitarians, I would add, think it's a wrong-headed holdover from Greek philosophies to suppose that divinity implies either immutability or impassibility. Why would you think God is incapable of any sort of change? On the face of it, you'd think that when a sinner repents, God changes. He changes from being against that person to being for that person, or from holding his sins against him to not holding his sins against him. Boom, change in God. Simple, right? Well, they thought perfection required absolute unchangeability, but it's hard to see why. Because changes like I just described wouldn't make God less great. So why couldn't you be perfectly great, perfectly good, Why couldn't you be the greatest sort of being that's possible and yet undergo innumerable changes constantly as the world which you have created and are governing is changing? Just think again about the contents of God's knowledge at any given time. Impassibility? Why was it a big deal for God to sacrifice his beloved son on the cross if it didn't cause him the least little bit of hurt? Why wouldn't that pain him to see Jesus unjustly being tortured and killed? Why wouldn't he be moved by that? Well, it was a common ancient view that this is just obviously impossible. A perfect being can't be subject to any kind of suffering. Channing, in his remarks, assumes divine immutability and divine impassibility. I think that's a mistake. When the Trinity's podcast returns, I react to his treatment of several common objections to Unitarian Christianity. Podcast 310, where he answers a bunch of objections to his sort of Unitarian Christianity, he brags, and I think reasonably, that as far as he knows, learned Unitarians have contributed at least as much to the defense of the Christian faith as any other group of Christians. This was true in 1821. This is no longer true. The achievements of Trinitarian scholars in defending the faith against all sorts of objections have far surpassed the efforts of Unitarian Christians. And the reason for this is, one, our small numbers, and two, that a lot of Unitarian Christian movements have kind of neglected higher education. By neglecting higher education, we don't have a lot of experts on, for instance, philosophy, history, biblical studies and biblical languages. We don't have a whole lot of earned MAs and PhDs among us who work in fields relevant to apologetics. Biblical Unitarianism in recent times is basically a lay movement. It's not a movement of pastors and scholars and leaders. It's a movement of pew-sitters who want to live up to the Protestant ideology and base our views on the Bible, not on small-c Catholic traditions. But 
to develop and grow, I think we need all sorts of people. We need evangelists. We need pastors. And we need scholars and apologists who can defend not only distinctively Unitarian Christian views, but also just belief in God and belief in miracles and just Christianity generally. In my view, we can do better. We must do better. And insofar as we care about apologetics, which is basically removing barriers to Christian faith through the careful use of human reason, if we want to improve our game on that, we're going to have to learn a lot from present-day and recent Trinitarian scholars, because we're behind in apologetics. And by the way, Chenny mentions that the famous Christian philosopher John Locke and the famous early physicist Sir Isaac Newton were Unitarians, but he mentions that some people had recently denied it. Yeah, that's true. Those were just two bitter pills for some Trinitarians of the early 19th century to swallow. But now it's been definitively shown that both of these gentlemen were indeed Unitarian Christians, people who thought that the one true God is the Father alone. We know this because we have their writings, their journals, and so on. Another point that Channing makes in that essay, which I think is true and important, is that we should not assume that all the important reforming has been done. I don't see how someone could have thought that all the needed reforming had been done in 1819 or 1821 or 1838. I don't see how anyone could think that all of the biblical reforming has been done that needs to be done as of 2021. On to his next apologetics talk, I thought he really had a lot of excellent observations about the rationality of belief in miracles. He gets in some good blows against a famous book chapter by the skeptic David Hume, and I'm going to just focus on some areas of agreement and disagreement real quickly here. One thing I disagree with is he says that there is only one adequate cause of real miracles, that is, the power of God. I would say that omnipotence being all-powerful surely is sufficient for being able to bring about a miracle, but I don't see why it should be necessary. I would ask, why couldn't God make a creature with the power to enact exceptions to, so to speak, to break the laws of nature? I don't know. One might think that angels and demons could have such powers to act contrary to nature's normal ways, So if there's good reason to think that something supernatural has happened, uh, that some agent beyond nature must be at work, it may not be immediate that we can conclude that this is God. That might take a little bit more thinking, might depend on the context. For instance, suppose you witnessed, I don't know, somebody levitating, and what happened immediately before was somebody said, Hail Satan, and plunged a dagger into a naked victim on an altar. Well, you probably wouldn't say that was God, right? Assuming it was a real miracle. If you say, well, only God can do miracles, then I guess you would just have to insist that what I described would be impossible. But, uh, I mean, look, it's conceivable. And on the face of it, there are some scriptural incidents, such as Moses' interactions with the magicians of Egypt, which arguably involve supernatural powers exercised by beings other than God. But that's another argument. Cheney makes the excellent point that presumably God has good reasons for generally upholding a very regular course of nature. 
In other words, a world in which there are very few exceptions to the general laws that govern how events happen one after another. But God might very well have reasons to bring about exceptions to those laws. Belief in miracles goes hand in hand with belief in an all-powerful God. If he's keeping things orderly because he has good general reasons, that's consistent with thinking there might be some more specific reasons, some special circumstances in which he would want to do things differently. And so those would be miracles. Those would be exceptions to the laws of nature brought about, so to speak, by the hand of God. What sort of circumstances? Well, how about vindicating a prophet? How about convincing people that this guy who says he's God's Messiah really is God's Messiah? That would be a pretty good occasion, don't you think, for God to do some miraculous signs and wonders so as to kind of get people's attention and put a divine stamp of approval on this man? I'm not sure how we could know, as Channing asserts, that God's main purpose is to mature and improve created selves, or as he says, minds. But one would think, given the value of human selves, that this would be a main purpose of God's. I also agree with him that it's very plausible that we humans needed special, miraculous revelation from God. Because what we can glean from reason and normal experience alone, that's not enough for us. As Channing points out, it was really Jesus who revealed God's heart towards us as our Heavenly Father. Before that divine revelation, people tended to imagine God in the image of a great king or emperor who's just flat too busy for you and has much greater things to be thinking about than little squirts, little worms like yourself. Well, actually, Jesus teaches, this all-knowing, all-powerful creator and governor of the universe knows all the hairs on your head and even knows every little sparrow that falls, which are colorful ways of saying that he's aware of everything and is interested in everything, especially in humans who are made in his image and likeness. Channing presupposes in this talk, as many did in the early modern era, that one or more design arguments, or at least our experience of apparent design in nature, will provide strong evidence for belief in God. I think that's right, but why it's right is a long conversation. Some design arguments, I think, will be stronger than others. Now, he tries to argue that Christianity must have a supernatural origin based on facts that seem like they're explicable or understandable as effects caused by God and not understandable just as products of ordinary human nature. And one of those that he focuses a lot on is the moral character of Jesus. But I think he goes too far when he says that Jesus showed no impression of the period in which he lived. I think this is wrong. I agree that his character and actions were and are amazing, but still, consistent with that, a lot of his ideas and actions are understandable as those of a Jewish religious teacher during the late Second Temple period. And I think a lot of recent, you know, late 20th and early 21st century scholarship has shown that. I wonder if Channing here is assuming a rather low opinion of the ancient Jews in general, which was traditional with both Catholics and Protestants to think that the Jews were really rather passionate, rather problematic and legalistic and not very spiritual. I mean, 
According to the Bible, the Jews had lots of problems, but it's not clear to me that they're worse than any of the other tribes of the world in these ways. And so I don't think we should be resistant to understanding Jesus as fitting into his own people, into his own tribe, and into his own time. He also credits Jesus as being the first one to conceive of a universal religion, a religion which is for everyone, for all the peoples, all the tribes of the world. I don't think that's true, and here's an exception that they actually didn't know about in Channing's day. Buddhism, uh, maybe not the Buddhism of the original Buddha, but the Buddhism that existed in the couple centuries BC leading up to the time of Christ, that was a missionary religion. And they did seem to think that they had the cure that would apply to all the peoples of the world. Buddhist missionaries actually made it as far as, like, Alexandria, Egypt. So I think, you know, maybe the Emperor Ashoka, or at least maybe some of these Buddhist uh, missionary monks, did have an idea of a universal religion that should be for all the peoples of the world. However, one has to say that Buddhism has always had trouble spreading very far beyond the reach of Indian culture. Buddhism basically spread from South Asia to East Asia to Tibet, Mongolia, tried to go west, didn't get very far, and until very recent times, that's just where it kind of got stuck. It didn't spread as much as Christianity did. Now, it's got little outposts now in all the major cities of the world, but anyway, Channing didn't know about this, but I think there was probably an idea of a universal religion in Buddhism before the time of Jesus. That doesn't mean the Buddhists were the first to think it up, though. I think the idea is presupposed by a famous prediction by the ancient Jewish prophet Isaiah in chapter 11 of his book. He talks about a time when the wolf shall live with the lamb, the leopard shall lie down with the kid, the calf and the lion and the fatling together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the asp, right, a poisonous snake, and the weaned child shall put its hand on the adder's den. They will not hurt or destroy on all my holy mountain, for the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Presumably, if the knowledge of Yahweh fills the earth, then the people in all of the earth, one could say all the world's tribes, will worship Yahweh. It's not just talking about head knowledge, I take it, but, you know, familiarity with the ways of. In that sense, to know God is to love him, and to know God is to fall down and worship him. So I would credit not Jesus, but rather Isaiah, with being the first one to have a concept of a universal worldwide religion, and this would be several centuries before any Buddhist imagined it. Channing makes what is arguably a misstep when he's arguing from the character of the New Testament writings. What he says has now become controversial when he says that in the New Testament letters, quote, there is not a trace of the circumstances of a later age, end quote. Well, since his time, many scholars, both very liberal but even some pretty conservative, hold that the so-called pastoral epistles are not really by Paul. And the reason they think this is they think they detect 2nd century, or at least late 1st century, concerns in those books. 
If that's true, that puts those books after the lifetime of Paul, who died in the 60s. They also think there are a lot of conceptual and vocabulary differences from what they believe are the seven genuine letters of Paul. So this sort of argument would need a lot more defense, uh, if indeed it can still be sustained. Still, he makes a lot of worthy points about Jesus' character, his teaching, and the qualities of the New Testament writings. And his basic point is, look, it's easy to say that humans just dreamt this up, but the sources themselves pony up this as a cause, that this was God acting through this man and confirming his calling and his identity and his work through signs and wonders. That's one explanation of the rise and growth of Christianity. And if you just say, well, it's just human imagination, it's easy to say that, but it's not easy to actually concoct a full-blown, human-only explanation of these phenomena. It's a lot harder than you might imagine it to be at first glance. So the thrust of his argument is, hey, isn't the best explanation that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself? When the Trinity's podcast returns, a major misgiving that I have about one aspect of Channing's thinking. One thing I've noticed in several of Channing's writings, including his lecture uh, Answering Objections to Unitarian Christianity, is his anti-revivalism. So there were these events in early American history that historians call Great Awakenings. The first one was basically in the 1730s. And, you know, there was a lot of uh, emotional extremity, a lot of excitement, a lot of fervor, a lot of alleged manifestations of God's spirit and not everybody believed that this stuff was God. Some people thought it was just human nuttiness. And so from the 1730s on, there's a long history, and it even goes back earlier than that into the 1600s, back into England. But there was a long history in the 18th century of opposing what at the time they would call enthusiasm. You know, people with their crazy overheated brains getting all excited and just coming up with stuff. And it's really not genuine Christianity. It's really not spiritual and so on. This kind of reaction especially happened in relation to what historians call the first great awakening, which was in the 1730s. There was a second great awakening that is dated by historians usually starting sometime in the late 1700s and going up until about the middle of the 1800s. And so this was occurring in Channing's life, and especially the Second Great Awakening was more of a working class and lower class phenomenon, not so much something that was current in the kind of circles that Channing ran in. It wasn't something that you'd find among the educated elite in New England, but it's something that you would find among immigrants, among country people, among the poor, etc., So I have to tread very carefully here. I don't think he's really extreme. He's very careful to say that you can't judge really much of anything about a person just because you know that they've had some intense emotional slash religious slash spiritual experience. 
Sometimes that's how people begin their new life as a follower of Christ. On the other hand, sometimes that's not how people begin. You will meet a number of people who did not have some big, intense, born-again experience, but they sort of just always believed in God and were taught to follow Christ, and that's what they've been doing. But they don't have a really great story about falling down on their face in tears and you know, repenting of really terrible things. Some people have that experience and some don't. He's trying very hard not to be judgmental, But I do think that he's assuming that his own emotional style that he's comfortable with, which is a very Northern European kind of vibe, it's a very white people thing in America, he's assuming that this restrained emotional style is just obviously better, more reasonable, and more spiritual than an emotionally freer, noisier, more expressive style would be. And it's not just the white people versus the others, although, you know, you can contrast, you know, a lot of white churches with the black American churches. The black churches have a reputation for being more expressive and more emotional. I don't see anything wrong with that. It seems to me that the different tribes of the world have different styles. The Northern Europeans, of which I am completely one, My sister took one of those genetic tests, and our genes are like 100% England and Ireland. Anyway, Northern Europeans, Germans, Norwegians, Swedes, Brits, Scots, Finns, they're very kind of buttoned down. They're kind of emotionally tight. This is how it is. They're not the only ones. You know, the Japanese are more buttoned down than the Koreans or the Chinese. But you could probably line up cultures on a continuum of emotional tightness or freeness. And uh, these Northern Europeans would be pretty far toward the one end, I think. And I just don't see any grounds to assume that this style is more spiritual, or really that there's anything objectively better about it. I mean, maybe some people who are Christians are going to be loud and talk about it. Maybe they're going to want to sing and dance. Maybe they're going to get excited and fall down. Myself, I went to vineyard churches for about 10 years, living in California. And on a few occasions, I saw some really weird things. I won't go into the details now, but I thought sometimes I couldn't tell if people were just blowing off steam or if they really were being touched by God's Spirit in some special way. I just didn't really think I had to decide either way. I would sit back and look at the effects on their lives and, you know, see what they thought about it later on or just see if it made them more Christ-like or if it didn't. I mean, I think I'm saying just obvious things here. I'm not entirely comfortable with this passage in Channing's objections talk. So he's talking about the general objection that, hey, you know, our sort of Christians, Trinitarians, are more zealous, more spiritual. We have like real piety and more kind of uh, religious experiences. And part of his reply is that we, meaning Unitarian Congregationalist Christians, we interpret with much strictness those precepts of Christ which forbid ostentation, in other words, doing something to be seen, and which enjoin, that is, which teach modesty and retirement, that is, privacy in devotion. We dread a showy religion. We are disgusted with pretensions to superior holiness, that stale and vulgar way of building up a sect. We believe that true religion speaks in actions more than in words, 
and manifests itself mainly in one's general state of mind and life, in giving up one's desires to God's authority, in inflexible uprightness and truth, in active and modest love, in fair judgment, and in patience under trials and injuries. We think it no part of piety to publicly announce its deep feelings, but prefer a certain propriety in regard to these secrets of the soul. And hence, to those persons who think religion is to be worn conspicuously and spoken of passionately, we may seem cold and dead. When perhaps were our hearts uncovered, they might be seen to be alive to God as truly as their own. Now, I think he's absolutely right to defend that uptight white guy sitting in the back pew who doesn't want to yell amen, who doesn't want to sing loud, doesn't want to raise his hands. And yet, if you knew that guy, you would see a heart really alive to God. If you looked at his actions, if you knew his motives, you would say, wow, what a godly person. And yet, you can't tell by looking at the way he comports himself in public. Yes, I think you should defend that guy. But I think you can also defend the person who's very expressive and just lets it all hang out. Just because somebody is doing something like feeling a certain way toward God or expressing their feelings to God, just because somebody's doing it in a way that can be seen, it doesn't mean they're doing it to be seen. And unless there's good evidence otherwise, I think we should give people the benefit of the doubt. I think there has to be room in the church broadly for both types of person, for both types of cultures. Maybe in an assembly, it'll normally be mostly one or mostly the other. Maybe that's okay. But I think modesty and propriety don't need to be what, say, German culture or English culture say they should be. The standards of the culture of Uganda or Mexico or China might be just as good for all I know. I think with Channing's sort of attitude, a lot of not Northern European people just wouldn't be comfortable in that environment. And insofar as this type of Unitarian Christianity limited itself to upper-class people, to white people, to people in the Northeast, it didn't limit itself entirely to those, of course, but insofar as it stuck to what they were comfortable with, it wasn't going to be able to include a wider array of people And I suspect that may be a thing that held it back. Christian churches have always had a lot of lower-class, working-class people. The better sort, who don't think they need God, tend to not darken the doors of churches. Just as a general rule, of course. When the Trinity's podcast returns, a few comments on Channing's talk, Likeness to God. When I decided to present Channing's interesting and sometimes controversial talk called Likeness to God, I was kind of expecting that I would find some big problem with it. But on the whole, I just think it's a really healthy emphasis. 
This Reformation idea that Christians don't actually become righteous, but simply have Christ's righteousness imputed to us, we just have God look at us as if we were righteous like Christ, uh, that's not right. The New Testament presupposes that as we work out our salvation with fear and trembling, we are actually making progress towards Christ's likeness. I think there's a traditional Augustinian and Calvinist misanthropy, dislike of humans, denigration of humans, which needs to be balanced out by the point that we are creatures with astounding potential to be like our Heavenly Father, to be, you can say, godlike. Now, nothing can come to have the divine essence, but one can come to increasingly resemble God. The one misgiving that I have right now about his presentation is when he says that likeness to God should be our number one goal, our main aim. I'm not sure that's so. It is very important to know that this is a potential that is compatible with human nature, and even more than that, that this is something that we are called to. We are called to eternal life and to radical transformation of our character into Christ-likeness, into godliness. But it seems to me a little individualistic that one should focus on moral improvement as one's main goal. Now Channing, I think, does a beautiful job in pointing out in that talk that the way to spiritual progress, the way to godliness, is not found by adopting some weird lifestyle. It's not found by getting rid of society and family. No, the way to increasing godliness is obedience to God. It's following Christ with one's wife and kids, with one's neighbors, with one's friends, with one's co-workers. It's these circumstances that God has given us as the you know, grinding stone on which to sharpen our blade. This is exactly right. But insofar as you're embedded in all of these ordinary pursuits, family, church, work, serving and loving your neighbor, insofar as you're committed to all of these things, you're not going to have a main focus on yourself, even on your own moral growth or in your own growth in Christlikeness and godliness. There were some other little details I wasn't too sure about in that talk, but on the whole, I really think it's a gem, and I think it's right in its main claims. I think that's the main misgiving I have about it, is that it comes across a little bit too individualistic, a little too self-focused. But by all accounts, you know, Channing was a godly husband and father. He was a hard-working minister. In fact, I think I've read he's prone to overwork, to serving too much, and wearing himself out. So I don't think he was too self-focused, at least not that I know of. But he's certainly right that once you realize that this is a possibility for you, how could you ignore it? What a fantastic gift. After you realize that this is a potential outcome for you, you can't just ignore it and just do ordinary things. And he doesn't make uh, the mistake of, you know, a Gnostic who thinks that certain people just have a spark of the divine in them, and if they could just uncover that, everything would be hunky-dory. No, he doesn't think that. He thinks that Christian discipleship requires the carrot and the stick. And what he's emphasizing is, hey guys, it's not just the stick. We do need to fear God, and we do need to be warned about God holding us accountable. And at the same time, we need to see that we've been offered something really precious, which is being able to be like-minded with God. 
being able to be loving like God and thereby to understand his ways and to love his ways, to be the kind of people who would want to do his will and be with him in his kingdom with the Lord Jesus Christ. So that's all I have to say about his talk, Likeness to God. Did I leave out anything important, anything importantly good or importantly bad in that talk or in the previous episodes that you heard? I think as we now turn over into 2021, I'm not going to do more chanting, at least for a while. I'd like to someday see some of these things published if possible. I think these modernized versions that I've made are just really powerful, and I think William Ellery Channing left a wonderful testimony of a disciple of Christ. I want to share with you an interesting first-hand account of what sort of person William Ellery Channing was. This is a description of him from the journal of a Mrs. Sedgwick who lived in Lenox, Massachusetts, who hosted Dr. Channing in his travels. And this was during about the last year of his life, I believe. So this is when he's in his early 60s and has had a lot of time to grow and mature. She writes, in part, The greatest pleasure and excitement of the summer have consisted in Dr. Channing's residence among us. He came the first of July and remained nearly two months with us, and he did not go away until early in September. I had no personal knowledge of him before, having seen him but twice and then merely for a few moments. I knew him only through his writings and the opportunity to interact with him, which I have been permitted to enjoy, I rank among the greatest pleasures and highest privileges of my existence. His life, from the state of his health, and probably too from the natural bent of his mind, was so entirely one of study and contemplation that few who had lived all their days in the same city either knew him or thought of him in a social capacity. But uniquely lofty as is the spirit which his writings breathe, He was true to every word of them in heart and in life. It might have been truly said after every fresh interview, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked with us? His conversation was of a most elevating, inspiring nature, and there was something in his whole air and manner, in the expression of his eye and the tone of his voice, that gave me the impression of a being who lived altogether above the world, and yet he was so full of human sympathy of true brotherly love, so very kindly that this elevation never constituted any barrier between himself and those with whom he associated. On the contrary, for the time being, they felt themselves lifted into a higher, purer, holier atmosphere than that of ordinary life. As I said recently in a letter to a friend, the man was never lost in the saint, nor the friend in the prophet and seer. Indeed, we never had a friend in close neighborhood who showed more interest in everything connected with us, in young and old, in our family and in our school, in our occupations, pleasures, and pursuits of every sort. I imagined he had never before lived where, from the absence of all conventionalisms, he was able to mingle so freely with those about him and to penetrate so completely into the heart and core of things connected with their social condition. Our hours were never too late, or our assemblies of people too large, to tax his feeble strength, which, in such a place as Boston, unfitted him completely for general society, 
and our opportunities of free, informal, and kindly interaction with him brought us so near to him and on such a footing that heart answered to heart as face to face. He took great interest in the children and never allowed them to pass him without a kiss or kindly greeting. Dr. Channing's countenance when speaking in public or private, but more especially on religious subjects, was full of inspiration. His look, his manner, the tone of his voice, as well as what he uttered, were all calculated to make our hearts glow. His prayers were like the genuine outpourings of a tender, devoted, loving child to his father, full of reverence and of earnestness. The whole effect of his services, even when conducted in this simple manner in a private room, was precisely such as I have since heard ascribed to his public services. The very atmosphere about him seemed holy. Our hearts, for the time at least, were purified and exalted, and we shrank from dispersing, as if by leaving the spot we should break some sacred spell. It seems to me that this lady understood him to have achieved what he wanted to, which is to be a real lover of God and of his fellow humans. It seems to me that he ran a pretty good race. May we all do that well in our service to God and to our neighbors, or even better. This week's thinking music has been the track Simplify by Little Glass Men. As always, there's a link on the blog post for this episode at trinities.org where you can listen to or download that entire track. Also at that link, you'll find an image of the 1838 painting, which is the only image of him that he and his family actually thought truly looked like him and did him any justice. If you love the Trinities podcast, please share this episode on social media like Twitter or Facebook. And help other people to find the podcast by giving us an honest rating and review in the iTunes store for your country. You can also support the Trinity's podcast by giving a certain donation per episode. If you're interested in that, please visit patreon.com slash trinities. Finally, let us know what you think. Give us a comment on the blog post for this episode. Or join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash trinities. For listening, we'll see you online at trinities.org. Till next time, don't forget to love God with all your mind. <laughs>